0: Hebrews 10, 1 through 18, as we continue to go through the letter to the, probably a small Jewish church, pretty much understood and agreed upon by most people that this was written to a small church that was experiencing, or had experienced um, persecution. Uh, I believe it's the Nero Claudius was probably the one during that time, and um, the church in Rome, and they had left the synagogue, or Jewish believers, and because they had left, they were being persecuted, and then many of them, too... Uh, be, you begin to think, is it worth it? I could just go back to the synagogue. Um, and even during this time, the temple and probably is still standing from the way things are worded in here and um, have the sacrifices done again. I mean, think of the outward splendor even in those days when the the curtain had been torn and the ark is no longer there. A lot of the glory, original glory of the... Temple's no longer there, but the priests still go and do the sacrifices. There's still blood being spilled. There's still, I mean, we today can look and it's like they're not doing that. The temple's not there, but probably during this time it was. And as people are, are looking at, you know, follow Jesus with persecution or go back to the tabernacle and synagogue and, you know, don't have to deal with persecution anymore. And you get the blood sacrifices, you get priests, you get the whole thing. What, what am I thinking? What am I doing? And so a lot of people you can understand under duress like this um, would, are turning and going back and so a lot of this letter is written to those people that small church to encourage them that are standing strong in persecution. Uh, later in Hebrews it says you have not yet resisted to the point of bloodshed which is sort of pointing to the fact that probably they're about to and historically we see that um, the Christians living in that area in this time were even more greatly persecuted and put to death and tortured um, and this letter is written to them first to be able to be sustained through this, and then to encourage them to stand strong and don't return um, to the, the shadows of Jesus Christ. You have the reality. And so you can see how it would be, we're, we're worshiping here, but you know what we have, we have the Lord's Supper, and we have baptism, but we don't have all that other stuff. You don't have the, the priests that are you know, clothed in their priestly gowns and all of these things, the sacrifices and all this stuff that's, that's, that's given and they don't have the persecution. And so Jesus must be valued highly to keep somebody in that church. And it's the same thing today. Uh, persecution is not the same yet as it was then. Um, look how little persecution Christians will endure. Um, hardship. How little hardship Christians will endure. How this, what has happened, has shaken the church and sifted it a great deal. So some people will never be back. Some people might go somewhere else and maybe, but some people will never be back. And this was nothing. I I can't believe the number of people think this is gonna be the end of the world. I mean, this is nothing in, in the light of historical hardship. It doesn't take much for people who have great comfort to complain because the air conditioner is not working well. The pews aren't cushiony enough. Um, we're soft, and we know it. Or maybe we don't. That's a, way that God, that's a way that Satan can get us to. Uh, to it's been called a, um, a soft curse, and it can draw you away. You don't want any hardship. I don't deserve hardship. I mean, we, my generation pretty much figured out all our needs are taken care of. And then the next generation, their needs are taken care of. And the next generation, your needs are taken care of. And yet, everything we wanted, we said we needed. And so we have to be careful. And as we look at this, we have to remember that Jesus Christ Is more valuable than our comfort. That Jesus Christ is more valuable than these things. And then particularly what we're going to see today is um, as you begin to look at your, into your heart and your conscience and the things that you've done in your life and how well you've lived or not lived in these things and you're recognizing you're not good enough, you're insignificant. Who are you to do these things? that this is the very thing the author of Hebrews the Holy Spirit through Hebrews is telling us is that you're forgiven and your your guilt has been dealt with your access to God is open so make access to him so let's look and read these uh, verses and then we'll look at them just a little more closely for just a few minutes so the word of the Lord let's pray Father God we thank you for your word we pray that um, as this letter was written to a particular people at a particular time, it's it was also written for us today. It's not just an old letter to to a bunch of people who aren't alive any day. It's, it's living. And the, the book of Hebrews tells us this. The word of God, which this is, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it divides into our hearts. So we pray that you would, by your spirit today, use the hearing of the word, the preaching of the word, that we would give full attention to this and that we would know it applies to us and that by your spirit you would um, bring to life and put to death and make us more like Christ and give us encouragement and strength even through what we hear and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So chapter 10 verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, since they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold... Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Amen. The word of the Lord. And so as we look at this, you have to see the overarching theme is the fact that somehow we're supposed to be, our consciences have been perfected. Somehow we're supposed to have more access to God. We're supposed to have a different thinking because there's a different reality. And so if you just look at verse 1, he says, For since the law is but a shadow of the good things to come, Right, so you look at a law, and it's a shadow. And what a shadow is, there's something, there's you know something solid, and there's light, and it's just casting a shadow. The shadow doesn't have substance. It's a thing that you can see, but it, it doesn't. It's, there's a reality that the shadow is is um, pointing to. And so you know, if you're outside and all of a sudden it gets kind of dark, you know, a plane went over, or a cloud went over, there's something, but that shadow itself is is not a, an actual physical thing. And so he's saying this is what the Old Testament, the Mosaic, the law according to Moses, the law that Israel dealt with. It was just a shadow of the good things that were to come. And then if you look back at, verse, at chapter 9, verse 11, we read, but when Christ appears as a high priest of the good things that have come, you see it's the law pointed to good things to come, and then Jesus, he's the priest of these good things. And you can say, well, what are the good things? And the good things, exactly what he's talking about here. It's, it's the gospel. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's the things that in the Old Testament churches they would look forward to and try to figure out. And they could study the prophets and they could see the blood being spilled. And there was lots that they understood about God. But the reality is here. So as he's talking to this church that's under persecution, wanting to return to the old covenant worship, to the old synagogue, the tabernacle temple worship, He's saying, Why would you do that? It's a shadow of the thing. It's like having a picture of food versus having the actual food. You don't say, Well, I'm done with the food. I'm just going to go back to looking at pictures of food. It's, you know, you want the reality. And here you are experiencing the reality of these things. So. The true form of these realities is here. It can never buy the same sacrifices. These Old Testament sacrifices. It was a, I mean, I hope you understand. You know, Old Testament, they did lots of animal sacrifices, lots of blood. I mean, it was unbelievable the amount of blood that was involved, particularly in different times of the year in the sacrifices that were taking place. Um, in order to forgive people of their unintentional sins, of their um, violations of these holiness codes that were given. You know, you, you know a lot of the rules, or at least know about them, in, in Israel where it was you can't touch this, you can't eat that, you can't wear this. Um, there were all these things that were designed to keep them separate from the world. And yet they would violate these. And so there had to be something to happen to keep them from being thrown out of the, the land and so they had these sacrifices so that people said blood has to be spilled it's not my blood it's that blood and that somehow enables us to be able to stay and so they trusted by faith and it says that they were those who draw near to God through him so sorry they continually offered every year these sacrifices it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. So in the word for perfect is that word teleo. It's where Jesus on the cross says to tell us die. It is finished. It has an idea of um, being brought to the perfect conclusion for what something was made for. Okay. So if, if our purpose is to have fellowship with God, our purpose is to, to love one another, our purpose is to be able to glorify God, and enjoy him forever, those sacrifices didn't bring us to that end those sacrifices didn't bring that perfectly to place. Otherwise they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin. So some of this stuff is like words have to be explained and I'm sorry but you do have to understand words to understand a sentence. So this word conscious it's really the word for conscience. Okay so the word conscious and the word conscience are similar. Um, Conscience is like if you're conscious, that means you're awake, you see things, you're conscious. Consciousness of sins is to be aware of it. Conscience is a thing that, that helps you distinguish right from wrong and it has more of this. We know that we're talking about being conscious of something but having your conscience bother you are two different things. So you can see how this word is being translated with these two different things. But an awareness of sin and having a conscience of sin are a little bit different. And this is talking about having this conscience, and the King James calls it conscience of sin. Your conscience bothers you, or it should, after you sin. So how can you go to God with that guilty conscience? And so they know that they go with a sacrifice. And that guilty conscience can keep me from going to God. That knowing that I'm coming to the pres- presence of a holy God. And I have a burden of sin. I have things that I've done. How do I go before God where my conscience is burdening me? And so you go and you offer sacrifices. And then a year later you do it again. And a year later you do it again. And again and again and again. It's like. This is not being taken care of. He's like, well, every year it is. It's like, but no, it's still, every year when I come, I have to come with another sacrifice. And then throughout the year, there's other sacrifices that are being offered. The the once a year sacrifices for the entire nation, but there's sacrifices that were offered throughout the year by people who had to come. And if you're coming before God, you had to bring blood because you're guilty. And so there's this constant reminder that they... You offer a sacrifice and then you walk away, and you how long before you had to turn around with another sacrifice? And in verse 3, it says, But in these sacrifices, there's this reminder of sin every year that's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away, to take them away. So then Christ comes. And he says, Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired. But a body you've prepared for me. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you take no pleasure. So these things in and of themselves without the reality, without Jesus Christ, meant nothing. So this all pointed to this reality. Same thing with our faith. Same thing with the Lord's Supper. Same thing with baptism. If there's no faith, if there's no Jesus, these things mean nothing. The reality are these things and we have the reality. So that when we participate in these things today, it is not pointing to the reality. It is participation in the reality. And it's, a, it's something that we miss out on and there's no way we can understand the, the fullness of it. Verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. So Jesus saying, I've come to do your will. And then we go down to verse 9, he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. It's a theme he's been having throughout Hebrews now. He's abolishing these laws that were under. He's fulfilling these laws because these all pointed to him. So when the reality comes, you experience the reality. You don't use the shadow anymore. You experience the reality. He's like these, that you think that the blood of a bull is going to but he's God is the blood of his son and now his blood has been spilled we don't do the bulls and goats anymore because his blood has been spilled on our behalf and by that will by what will? by the will of the Father. Jesus came to do the will of the Father and by that will we have been sanctified. God the Father wants us to be made holy God the Father sends Jesus Christ. It's not that Jesus, like, it's not, I think we picture sometimes God the Father is the mean guy, and Jesus is the cool guy, and Jesus is like, hey God, um, hey Father, like, how about don't hurt them today, um, you can beat me in their place. You know, so it has got some crazy father that's just, you know, dying to to torture and, and beat somebody, and Jesus says, beat me instead. You're welcome. It's not that, it's the Father saying, There's justice that has to take place. These people will go to hell forever if we treat them fairly. If we do what their sin deserves is hell forever. They're lost. And so God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit from all eternity counsel together and have this plan of redemption so that the Father desires the salvation of people. And the Son desires the salvation of people. The Holy Spirit desires the salvation of people. So that when Jesus says, you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. So you don't have a Father up there that's just like dying to get to you. You have a God who's dying to get to you. And the Father at great, why would he send the Son? Unless the Son wanted to be sent to. And they all, it's like, this has to happen. And then Jesus prays even in the garden, Father, if there's a way for this cup to pass. And it didn't. It couldn't. And that's your sure indication that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. If there were another way, the prayer would have been answered where Jesus doesn't go to the cross. But this was it. The only way of salvation. Because Jesus did perfectly the will of the Father so that we might be made Perfect. we might be sanctified, made more like him through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all so we don't repeat sacrifices when you come to the Father you don't bring a sacrifice um, when you come to here your offering is not a sacrifice this is not an altar it gets called that and in a sense I guess you can kind of see the Lord's table being an altar but, but there's no sacrifice being offered there the, the, the Lord's Supper is not a sacrifice. It is, He has been sacrificed. This is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you. This is His body which is given for you. You do this in remembrance, covenantal remembrance of Him. You're saying, I am totally, covenantally committed to you. If you don't save, I am lost. And that's it. And then in verse 11... Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. Now they did, because you may be saying, well, then why do it? It's because it's to be able to allow the people to stay in the land. Because this blood is what God is looking at that and saying, Jesus is going to cover their sins. My son is coming in the future and his sacrifice will cover all these sins as well as all the sins of my people in the future. But they stand. And he says this word stands um, intentionally. There's no chair in the furnishings of the tabernacle. The priest went in, you stood up, and you, you, there wasn't like you finished, you sit down, you leave. And when you go in, you're standing. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So that's the it is finished. I'm not going to have to get up and sacrifice myself again. I've done this one sacrifice. Waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And we know the Bible elsewhere says that death is the last enemy to be defeated. So when someone dies, we mourn. It's not the way things are to be. It's a part of the curse. But that curse is going to be put aside one day and there will be no more death. So we, that's why we don't mourn like those who have no hope. Because death is not the end at all for the believer. For by single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So it's interesting. You have been perfected, but you're being sanctified. Now the word sanctified is the word for holy. Um, you're being holified. You're being made holy. You're being made. So you've been made perfect, but you're being made holy. It's like, how can I be perfect if I'm not holy? And that's the good news in a sense you are holy because you're called a saint which is a holy one and what does the word holy mean? it means to be set apart for God's purposes to be set apart for God's purposes but it can also mean in this ongoing process of holification, becoming holy, is that actually in the way we talk, the way we think, the way we act, we're being polished, we're being chiseled away at, whatever analogy you want to look at, that we're being made more like Christ, even in our behavior. The things that we do, the things that we think, the things that we say, all of these things. But, even while that process is yet to be completed, we're already perfect. And remember, the word perfect Teleo, You have been, the purpose for which you're created has been completed. And part of that purpose is that you would understand that you must be perfected in Christ. A part of that understanding is you stand hidden in Christ. You have perfect access to God right now. Regardless, you gotta be careful with this kind of thing because this is what you don't want. They don't, if you're a youth director and you're preaching to high school and junior high students, they don't want you to tell people that your sin does not separate you from God as a believer that you are hidden in Christ and your sin does not stop you from access to God. Because what we want our young people to learn is your behavior matters. And so what we want to do is scare them into obedience because if, if you're not good enough, God won't love you. God can't use you in these things. And so what a young person learns is if they're smart and if they truly have a conscience that's soft, they'll go, I'm not good enough. I can't have access to God what good am I doing here? Why am I here? And so what they need to know is, you in Christ, you are perfect. You are whole. And he's working on us. Because we don't want to live in sin. Part of us does, and that's the problem. But there's an inner impulse within us that says, who will release me from this wretched body of death? Praise be to God in Christ Jesus that are standing before God our relationship with God and this perfection is about relationship it is not about performance the performance was done in Christ but in this relationship you stand in Christ in perfect relationship now what about when he disciplines us he doesn't discipline us so you'll start better behavior so that he can love you he doesn't demand a certain behavior so that he can say, all right, now we can do this work together. Now I can love you properly. It's, he does this because he loves you. Um, some people, if you're old enough or even if you're a kid in school or something, you know what it's like to not be able to get the, the what's it called? The the satisfaction, the love, the honor, the appreciation of a teacher. You can't get that of, of a boss. They just never... No matter what you do, is not quite good enough. And especially if you think of God, his standard is perfection. So if your boss's standard is perfection, man, that's very disheartening. No matter what you do, it's never good enough. And so what we have to understand, if you have a good boss, you have a good teacher, a good teacher recognizes the fact that we're all imperfect. I mean, God doesn't even see. The amazing thing is, God is perfect, and He's still able to do this because of Christ. So, a good teacher, a good um, um, boss, a good employer it's going, or um, supervisor or whatever, is going to be able. To, or teacher is going to be look at their student, their worker, their whatever, and to be able to say, "Let me help you improve," because I'm so <laughs> pleased that you're working here and that you're trying so hard and I know you want to do better. Now you can have somebody who just do not want to do, you can have some, as my father-in-law used to call it, just some star individuals. And so you got to work with those people in a little bit different ways, but you got to be able to be encouraging to people because we all fail. And so God doesn't work with us to make us better people, to be more Christ-like in order that he can, you know, now be, give you the thumbs up or the pats on the backs, the attaboys or whatever, but because he loves us so much, He's working with us. And he does it perfectly. We don't like it because we're fighting against him. If you have children, you know there are times when they're going to fight against you. But they still have to do it because you love them. You're going to make them do it even though they fight against you. But because you love them. If you're a good parent, it's because you love them. Not to get you to be able to love them if they just behave good enough. So if you being evil know how to give good things to your father, to your children. How much more does our father in heaven give good things to us? In that scripture. So in verse 15, that after the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, this is the covenant I will make with them in those days, declares the Lord. So this is where we are today in this covenant with God. I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them in their minds. And, and what does that mean? That means there's that inward impulse to want to do right. I mean, we might get struggled in sin. We do. We get caught up in sin. We get entangled in sin. We got different things. We go after other guides. We let our impulses. We walk in the flesh instead of walking in the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. And there's no law against these things. And that's what the inner impulse of God. So why does a believer do good? And apart from faith, it's impossible to please God. So anything we do has to be out of faith. But it has to just truly, for it to be good, it has to be from faith. And it has to be from an inward impulse, I want to do it. So what about things we don't want to do, but we know we're supposed to do? And so we do it, even though we don't want to. But we do it out of faith and obedience. Is that pleasing to God? Absolutely. Absolutely, it is. It's because we're in process. There are things that we know we ought to do that we don't want to do. Maybe it's something like, you know. I, you, I'm sure you've probably been in this situation before. I don't know. I just remember I was at this big event one time. I gave somebody a twenty. They're supposed to give me a ten. I got a hundred dollar bill. A hundred dollar bill. And this was back in the eighties when that was like worth a billion dollars. And I was young enough where it's like, <gasps> it was a treasure. And I had found it. And to my credit, at that particular moment my conscience got to me and I was like, I can't do that. Give this to the guy I gave me hundred. I was like, here's your hundred dollars back. So I didn't want to give him the $100 back, but I did want to give him the $100 back. And so things like that. You might not want to do something, but you know it's the right thing to do. So you trust God with your obedience. And that's pleasing. And then we pray for the heart to follow, even in our obedience, that we would not resist wanting to do the right thing. But just because you don't want to do it does not excuse you to do it, to not do it, or however that word, that sentence is supposed to be phrased. But that's not your works are not what your relationship is based on. It's, it, you can't live like that because you'll never be good enough and you know you won't be good enough and your flesh will use that as an excuse to just dive into the sloth of despine, to die into the muck and the mire and just say whatever. If you're not going to love me, I might as well do what I want to do. So, don't fall into that trap. It's not true. But laws have been written on your heart and in your mind. So, what happens is there's a war within you and you have to learn to walk in the spirit and not the flesh. The more you obey the flesh, the more it becomes habit. But God can release. I think it begins with truth telling. Just start speaking the truth. Don't lie. Just start. I don't care what it's about. Just tell truth. You know, at least don't lie. You know, be be, find this. If somebody says, how does this look? Men, find a way to like it. Okay? (laughs) You know, just find a way. Don't lie, though. And just truth-telling. You have to call the insurance company. How did your window break? Well, out of anger. (laughs) I kicked it with my foot. And, you know, you don't have to go into all that detail. But don't lie and say, I don't know. Or a rock flew up in it, because I know if I say that, then they'll pay for it. You suffer the consequences of telling the truth, and that becomes a habit, and that's more Christ-like, and then your life begins to change. It's a simple, small step to start to take. But then we get this in verse 17, because you're going to blow this. Probably, I mean, if we do this thing, we're going to make a covenant with each other that we will not lie for today. You ain't going to make it. You're gonna lie, making the covenant, probably. I, this reminds me of we did used to do 40-hour famine as a fundraiser for World Vision, and um, as you typically done with the youth group, and you raise money to get the World Vision, and you don't eat for 40 hours. Um, it's not as hard as you would think. Well, it's harder than anything. And so we'd all get together as a group, and we went, went to a mall and did something. You could drink water and stuff. So years later, I met one of the, the... Then a kid came up to me, and he says, Hey, Mr. Black, how you doing? I said, I'm doing good. How you doing? He said, good, good. He said, Man, i got to tell you something. I said, what? He said, this has been bothering me for years. I said, what? He said, remember we did that 40-hour famine thing? I said, yeah. He said, remember when we went to that mall? I said, yeah. I mean, it was like it was in his gut literally he said I ate a burrito <laughs> I said you ate a burrito yeah man I ate a burrito I was like slap slap <laughs> you know, how dare you depart from my presence you worker of iniquity It's just like funny you know because it's like you know so did I you know I didn't <laughs> I had too many too many eyes on me that um it was just it's just funny that's your conscience And and he didn't do it because it's just stuff. I mean, and then we can do really horrific things too. And what do you do with that? But he says this, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. It's God talking. I mean, that's what you have. If you're in Christ. It doesn't mean there's not consequences for sin. There's worldly consequences. um, Relational consequences. um, And there may even be consequences with God where he's going to do things in your life to say, we're going to have to I know you don't want to be like this. Maybe you do want to be like this. And you got to remember God loves you just the way you are, but he loves you too much to leave you like that. So as he's, as he's molding and shaping us, you got to remember it's not because I'm not good enough and he's going to beat me into conformity. It's that he loves us so much and these things that are out of conformity with him are just things that are hurting us. It's like a kid wanting to, you know, he's got his hands all in the mud and well, so, oh goodness, today it's like he's he touched a person, and now he wants to eat without washing his hands. You know, but some kids just dirty, dirty, dirty hands, and he wants to just go do something. It's like, no, you can't do that. It's not good for you. We're going to learn to wash our hands. Oh, I want to wash my hands. It's like, okay. you're gonna. So, you know, you learn from these things because you love the child. So as God is working with us, we have to know it's out of love. And then verse 18, where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. So yeah, we can look at this and say, all right, good. We don't do these offerings for sin anymore. But how often do we feel like we have to make offerings for sin? That we have to do something to get God to love us more. I've done bad. I've got to do certain things. J.I. Packer or Jerry Bridges, I think it may have been, um, calls it the, um, a performance treadmill. Like you're always trying to get God. You're, you're running, you're running, you're working, you're working to get God to love you, to get God to be pleased with you, to get God to forgive you. And it's like, you're not getting anywhere. It's been done. Why are you doing this? and you have to think about this, how much could you do? How much much good could you do if you committed yourself to the highest possible good that you could obtain? So, you gotta get away from legalism. You gotta get away from the idea I'm trying to please God. God's not pleasing me unless I do good enough. No. Let's, you know, you wanna make a change in the world, you look at the world you don't like the way it is, be a positive change. If you really devoted yourself to Doing and being the best you, you can be, how much good could you do? And you don't even know. <laughs> then how can you know? Because you're a mess. And maybe you've, you've even tried before to do good. And you might say, then why would God even use me? And here's the thing. God can change the world. But the way God has ordained to change the world is through you, is through the church. So if God has changed you, then you can change the world for good. I mean, what else does salt and light mean? We're to be salt, we're to be light. It means you're to be a change agent. You're to do good. You're to put forth effort in your life to clean up your room be kind to a person you meet that is irritating you because they aren't bringing your food quickly enough or whatever somebody that brushes against you somebody whatever they have irritated you you could be a long, you could be in a long line of people who just keep kicking that person and beating that person down and they're not thinking about anything but resentment and disappointment and then you're one more person they've disappointed and you just give them the look or you just say thanks or something instead of just saying suck it up do unto others as I have not doing to me don't worry about it thanks you know have a good day. You're doing a good job. I mean, don't lie about it, but find something. A lot of people, you don't know a little bit of encouragement you can mean to somebody and how little encouragement most people need. Just something. And that's going to take something out of you. It is a way of picking up your cross and following Christ. It is unjust suffering. It is absorbing the blow. And to be able to say, I'm not pushing it down, pushing it down. I'm giving it to Christ. Because he has absorbed all of my sin, and therefore I'm able to, to be light and salt. And you just do it. I mean, and then you're going to fail. You're going to say something to somebody, and they're going to be, you know, it's like, brush yourself off, try again. This is why you go to church. Encourage one another all the more you see a day approaching. We need each other. We fail, we fall. We don't do good. We don't do these things, but you've been forgiven. There's one sacrifice given. As we come to the Lord's table, we're going to see remember me I'm not remembering your sins anymore remember me and you think well why would God use me I'm small I'm insignificant and whatever you might say to yourself I'm not smart enough I'm 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 not good enough and then there's the rub God loves the weak God takes the weak things in the world to shame the strong God says when you're weak then I am strong it's, it's when you, you see your lack of power that he works most within us to show that the surpassing power is from God and not from you. So there's nothing more to be done by you to be found acceptable and loved by the Father but to have faith in him, but to trust in him, but to turn to him away from self and into him. Paul said, Who will release me from this wretched body of death? Praise be to God in Christ Jesus. So walk in the spirit, not the flesh. He loves you the way you are. He loves you too much to leave you this way. But we work together. We love one another. And cheer up, as Jack Miller has said, cheer up. You are a lot worse than you think you are. And God's grace is far greater than you ever imagine. He doesn't discipline you. And change you in order to love you. He does it because he loves you. And he loves the world. And we are to be the force of positive change in the world. Prayers. Deeds of love and mercy. Truth telling. Following Christ. Lovers of Christ. Forgiving other people. um, Trying to walk in the spirit. And I think we, I don't know if we sang the song last week or... uh, I thought I had it written down. It says, come you sinners, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. The only fitness he requires is to feel your need of him, and this he gives you. It is the Spirit's rising beam. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for grace, for mercy, for your love, for gospel, for your Holy Spirit, Um, for the ability to be able to walk in righteousness, uh, for the ability to be able to make mistakes, the ability to be able to sin horrifically and to be able to to fall on our knees before you and know we're forgiven in Christ and that we can move forward dealing with the consequences. But it starts with us. Starts with individual things, individual places, taking care of our little worlds first before we start to you know, criticize everything else out there. Help us to see the speck, the boards, the planks in our own eyes. And then know that these things melt away in Christ. They're, they're too lofty and hard for us to understand. But when we come to your table, and it's a reminder that without you we can do nothing. But with you we can do everything. And you invite us to slide our knees beneath your table because you You welcome us into your presence, sinners like us who are called saints because we're being perfected and we are perfect in Christ. Help us to be salt and to be light, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.